The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I want to thank you so much for tuning in uh, to our show today. The focus of today's show is an issue we are seeing daily in the news and in our own communities, the opiate epidemic. The opiate epidemic is significantly impacting communities across the country. Every day, we read stories of another overdose or death. Communities are struggling to respond to this crisis and find help for those suffering from addiction. I am glad to be bringing this discussion to you today to help you understand the complexities of addiction, signs and symptoms to watch for, and how to intervene with someone who's using drugs like prescription drugs or heroin. We will review interventions like the antidote Narcan, also known as Nalexan, Um, which is being used by law enforcement, as well as friends and families now to save lives of people who have overdosed. We will also highlight the process of recovery by hearing firsthand from a parent and her experience of walking the path of addiction with her son. This is a crisis that warrants a call to action for all communities and for all communities to take notice, but most importantly, to get involved. Today, we invite you to listen and become a part of trying to help tackle this critical health epidemic in our country. This show highlights another area of work that crisis centers throughout the country provide in responding to our communities 24 hours a day. We are coming to you live from Crisis Services, the 24-hour crisis center in Buffalo, New York. If you're interested in learning more about our organization and our mission, please go to our website at www.crisisservices.org. As we begin our discussion, and if you have any questions during the show, you can email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. In my own community here in Buffalo, New York, in the first few months of our, this year of 2016, these were some of our headlines. Deadly batch of heroin has killed 23 in Erie County over an 11-day period. Opiate deaths projected to double in Erie County, 124 in 2015 and over, or in 2014, and over 264 in 2015. Ten heroin do- overdoses in a 24-hour period points to em- epidemic in Buffalo. And across the country, there's headlines that read like this from the New York Times, how the epidemic of drug overdose 
death ripples across America. Heroin epidemic increasingly seeps into public view. In Philadelphia, a man riding a city bus at rush hour injected heroin into his hand in full view, and this video was taped and went viral. In Cambridge, Massachusetts, after several people overdosed in bathrooms of a historic church, church officials reluctantly closed the bathrooms to the public. And in Cincinnati, Ohio, a woman who dies and her husband overdoses in their baby's room at the Children's Hospital Medical Center. These are a few headlines that we see every day um, that really speaks to the need for us to have this critical conversation and try to make a decision of how we're going to impact it in our communities. As we're discussing this topic, you may see that this is describing you or someone that you love. We want to make sure that you get linked immediately to services in your area. So we were, um, would like for you to call for uh, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Service Administration, also known as SAMHSA's National Helpline. They have a treatment referral routing service that's confidential, that's free, 24 hours a day. Information is also provided in English and Spanish, and it's for individuals and family members facing mental health or substance use disorders. This service provides referrals to your local treatment facilities, support groups, and community-based organizations. So during the show, if you do need help, please call 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And you can also go to their website at samsa.gov and look, uh, if you search Find Help, it will bring you to the page to get you to the program directory. So I want to introduce my two guests that are helping us today to dive deeper into this issue and have a really honest discussion about addiction. My first guest is Judy Tejada, and she's been with Horizon Corporation for 16 years here in Buffalo, New York. She has served in several clinical positions and currently is their chief clinical officer. She oversees clinical programming for Horizon Health Services and is the head of the clinical services department, which oversees the Horizon University, which provides in-house clinical and non-clinical training for the corporation. She has her bachelor's degree in political science and a master's degree um, in college student personnel administration. She's also a licensed mental health counselor as well as a certified alcohol and substance abuse counselor. My other guest is Colleen Babcock. She serves as Horizon's parent and family support coordinator. Colleen strives to raise awareness about drug abuse in the community at large, but also helps individuals and families struggling with abuse, particularly those with opiate addiction, to access treatment and begin to continue their journey to recovery. Colleen's personal journey and her own son has provided her with education firsthand and how hard it can be to help at those moments of crisis, making her position at Horizons critical in the midst of the current prescription drug and heroin epidemic. No family gets a manual on how to deal with addiction. Her focus is primarily on the family providing emotional support hope, reassurance, information, and advocacy to ensure their expedited linkage to treatment and support at their most critical moments. Colleen is also a Narcan administration trainer and has trained thousands of individuals in our western New York area on how to use Narcan, which we'll be talking about a little bit later in the show. So thank you so much for the two of you for joining me today to really have this critical discussion um, around addiction. So can we just start with talking about how does the path of addiction start? Uh, thank you for having us, Jessica. Oh, absolutely. I, I think the path truly starts innocently and probably naively. Whether somebody starts using opiates as part of a 
medication regimen, um, and somewhere along the way, that medication regimen changes or stops, but the brain has already changed its dynamics and needs to continue to have that source. Or there's adolescent experimentation Mm -hmm. with substances overall, but particularly with opiates, and they don't know. I mean, nobody wakes up one morning and says, gee, I think it would be a great idea to become addicted to substances. Correct. So I really do think that most of it starts from a place of, you know, naivete and inexperience with substance and, and really not knowing the devastating effect that they can have long term. What are drugs that are commonly abused? Like when we see the types of addiction that you're faced with um, when you're providing services, what are the most common types of drugs that are abused? I mean, most commonly, I believe it's alcohol, if you're talking about drugs that are used across the lifespan. Mm -hmm. Right now, what we're seeing is heroin, Um, heroin laced with fentanyl, um, benzodiazepines, anti-anxiety medications, Ativan, Valium, um, Xanax. All of those substances seem to be, right now, having the greatest... um, impact on our community. Absolutely. Could you just talk a little bit, when you talked about heroin laced with fentanyl, mm-hmm. can you just describe what that is? Because that's really a critical piece of, of this discussion. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not a physician, so I, I can't really speak in, in that kind of language. But what we do know is that there, is, there are different grades of heroin. Okay. Heroin can be cut with other kinds of substances. And in particular, what we're seeing is heroin cut with fentanyl, which, which is an overwhelming um, pain reliever okay. used generally um, to treat the most debilitating kinds of pain in medical circumstances. And when that's present with the heroin, it is a, it's a shorter acting agent than heroin is. Okay. And so the need to use it increasingly over time mm. makes the addiction even worse. Right, right. Okay, okay. What are some signs and symptoms of addiction? Oh, Colleen, you had a, you had a comment yeah, as well. One, one thing I, I want to point out, which I think is very important, is the um, fentanyl that we're seeing in western New York and other communities is not the typical fentanyl that would be prescribed by your, by your doctor for extreme pain management. It's an analog. It's a synthetic um, fentanyl, and it's being manufactured in other countries, China, Afghanistan, okay. it's coming through the borders um, has an analog, a synthetic. So the DEA has a very difficult time really detecting it because every time they figure out what the combination is, they change it. Mm. And it's 50 times more potent than the heroin that we see on the streets. So the mixture can be equal to three grains of salt. That's what we're seeing in our communities is this combination of heroin and synthetic fentanyl, three grains of salt, which is killing wow. a, a population, right. um, has, you know, us sitting here as adults, we would say, well, if something kills you, you know, you push away from it. Mm-hmm. But as somebody who struggles with um, addiction disease, they're drawn to that. Right. They're drawn to that ultimate high. And it kind of started as uh, an answer to the I-STOP regulations. When I-STOP went into effect, okay. I mean, there's no question that this epidemic was started with prescription drugs, especially this new face of addiction. Right. 20 years ago, 
you know, we weren't seeing this. We didn't have 12 to 25-year-old heroin addicts. Absolutely. What changes? Right. When I um, first started my journey five years ago when my son was in treatment, over 90% of the young adults in their treatment facility were there because they were started they started with a prescription drug that was given to them. Well, when once you're addicted, you're addicted. Right. You know, you don't just stop. And when the prescriptions drugs started to dry up, the heroin was right there waiting for them. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, and that's such a critical piece, I think, to the discussion around um, the role of prescribing um, and how that has impacted uh, this epidemic significantly. And I think we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, but kind of talking about signs and symptoms of addiction, can you just talk maybe what are some physical um, signs somebody might witness or their behavior changes uh, that somebody might witness when you have uh, an addiction? Well, I think one of the biggest pieces that we see with the heroin addiction in particular is the increased tolerance to the substance. So if I was initially just using a bag of heroin, eventually, Eventually, I'm going to be up to two and then three and then a bundle, which would be 10 bags, Mm. um, because I no longer am getting the physiological or the psychological effect that I want from the substance. It's no longer doing its job. So tolerance is definitely one of those pieces that we see on the physiological side. Withdrawal um, on the physiological side as well is a big factor in why people stay addicted because at some point the withdrawal syndrome from opiates is so significant that the person is no longer using to get the euphoric effect of the substance. They just don't want to be sick. Okay. And that, I think, is really telling in terms of the opiate epidemic. Most of the people who are out there using right now aren't using because they're enjoying it. They're using it simply not not to get sick. Or stay sick. Interesting. Interesting. What are some um, some behaviors? If it's just um, their you know behaviors with their family or maybe at work, what are some things or signs that people could look for? Mm. I, I, and Colleen can probably speak to this pretty um, personally, but I think it's loss of control okay. over most aspects of life, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's adolescents and, and young adults who are attending high school or, or college or whatever it may be. There just no longer is the capacity to be able to deal with life Mm -hmm. um, in the way that they once were able to. I don't know if you want to add anything to that, Colleen. Well, I think in today's world, it's something that as a parent, you need to be educated about. You need to be able to look for the signs because they, they don't present, especially opiate addiction does not present like anything you you could ever imagine. It's um, a lot like growing pains, mm-hmm. you know, that, that isolation, they pull away, they become, you know, more um, private. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then it, you know, it escalates into a change of friends, the lack of hygiene. But it's a slow progression, but make no mistake, it progresses with everybody. Nobody, there's no successful opiate users. Um, but as a parent, you often, you know, w- wish that it changes. You know, it's, it's something that, it's a phase. They're going to outgrow it. But the reality is um, this, this epidemic you, you don't recover from. It is a progressive disease, 
it progresses much like cancer in stages. Mm. And the best chance at recovery is intervention in the early stages, just like cancer. Right. As as the disease progresses, um, fourth stage, recovery is is tough and, and less likely. So with the young adult population, it's so important that in a world that we live in where it's prevalent, we know it's there, nobody's safe. Right. You, you need to look for this. You need to be a little detective in your own home mm-hmm. and look for the signs. Um, because if you wait till it presents, it's usually by the time the bottom is dropping out. Okay, okay. And I think for a parent, it's like you said, that struggle of what's maybe a developmental phase that they're dealing right. with versus understanding that maybe those signs and symptoms are because of an addiction that they're, they're Absolutely. involved in. We, okay. we don't, as a society, we do not have the time to wait. And the stigma of addiction keeps people silent far too long. And and recovery is so, recovery is always possible, but in the early stages, you have so much more control. Right. And the chances are so much greater. And the stigma piece is such a critical part, like you mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think that, um, you know, the the need to be more compassionate and be more willing to help people um, in their darkest hour and really get involved and, and stick with them and not judge them and not Correct. also um, give up on mm-hmm. them is so critical for individuals with addiction because um, they may feel that they're a burden, and if, if everyone gives up on them, then they will continue to give up on themselves. Well, no, nobody hates the heroin addict more than the heroin addict themselves. Right. And we, as parents, um, we, we try all the wrong things. We do what makes us feel best in our heart, and the reality is supporting somebody in recovery as a parent, it doesn't feel good. Right. It doesn't feel right. Um, and you need to learn that. Much like they need to learn their path to recovery, stopping the drugs, that's the easy part. Everybody who struggles with addiction does that. That on again, off again, on again, off again, the roller coaster ride. Absolutely. As a parent, you do the same thing. I mean, you need a recovery process as well because you're constantly focused on helping them. You do mm-hmm. all the wrong things. You do what feels right in your heart. And your heart shouldn't feel good if you're doing the right things. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we'll, as we get into the next segment, we'll, we'll dive in a little deeper with you, Colleen, about your experience and, and what are some options for parents, because it is about not only supporting your loved one, but how you need to support yourself as you're going through that journey with them. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll definitely get into that because that's a real critical a conversation that I think will be important for the parents and, and just all family members who are, who are listening today. So um, as we head into to break, I just want to remind you um, as you're listening, if you need to talk with someone about resources in your community, you can call the SAMHSA National uh, Helpline at 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And you can also go to their website, samhsa.gov backslash find dash help and you'll be able to find online uh, online treatment locators to be able to find the resources in your your local community so please stay tuned you're listening to the journey stories of crisis and hope your life your health your network You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. 
Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black and Dari Samia. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you again for joining me today. Um, I have two wonderful guests with me today, Judy Tejada and Colleen Babcock, who are joining me to talk about the opiate epidemic impacting our communities and families really across the country. This is There is no community that is immune to this issue, and so we really are grateful for them coming on today to talk about uh, talk about this issue and what to do, what we can do to, to have an impact on this epidemic. So when somebody comes becomes addicted, it doesn't just impact them as the one using it. It impacts their friends, their family, um, really everyone around them. And so Colleen is here today, and she has experienced firsthand addiction in her family. So, Colleen, can you share with our listeners uh, your story as a mom um, as you've walked the path of addiction with your son? Um, sure. Thank you very much. I um, I mean, I'm, I think I'm like every other mom out there. I you know, love my kids. I love my family. I thought I did a good job of, of raising my kids. And um, Christopher, my, my youngest, was diagnosed with a genetic defect called neurofibromatosis when he was a baby. And he has two inoperable tumors in his brain. And the tumors started to cause problems. And between the ages of 7 and 14, he went through seven brain surgeries. He spent a lot of time in the hospital. It was wow. it was a very difficult time for our family. Um the tumors will never go away. He'll have this forever. It's it's genetic, but they did eventually place a ventricle shunt, and he's been doing well, knock on wood, um, since that time. And you think, you know, that's the worst of your worries that, you know, you get through that and life is going to be good, but nothing could prepare us for, you know, the following years, um, his high school years, just succumbing to simple peer pressure, things mm-hmm. that, and, and he'll tell you in his own words, it wasn't just him. He was with you know, tons of kids in school that were all experimenting with different substances, whether it was alcohol or marijuana, um, cough medicine. 
but for him, he went from zero to 100 in about 30 seconds. Wow. And there was no turning back for him. There was no stopping. And, you know, we, as things presented in our family, we addressed them like many families do. You know, we grounded him because he was out drinking. We took away his privileges. You know, we did things just like other parents do, but there was really no stopping him. The addiction just kept progressing and progressing and progressing. And has um, we reached out for help because we really felt that the tumors impacted what was happening. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic, bipolar, psychotic, borderline personality disorders. Every diagnosis came with a new prescription. And by the time Chris was 19, he overdosed twice and he had tried to hang himself. Mm-hmm. And it was really probably the lowest point for us as a family because addiction faces it it hits everybody in the family you know there's dialogue shuts down there's no communication you have people that are angry you are um, at your wits end trying to help you just don't know what to do you spin in circles and um, by the grace of God and I I say that with all my heart and soul we ended up at a program at Horizon Village Mm -hmm. and that program there not only changed Christopher's life but it changed my life Um, because it educated me, educated me more than anybody had ever educated me at all and helped me to understand how to best support him. Now, I I don't want to make it sound like that was a perfect journey. That was five years ago, and we're still on our path to recovery. Um, And it's been filled with ups and downs. It has not been a perfect journey. But today I can tell you my son works harder at his recovery than I do. And it didn't always start like that. It was me doing most of the work in the beginning. Okay. Um, you know, I had to learn how to support him. I had to learn those boundaries. I had to learn that if I wanted to best support him in his journey, it wasn't going to feel good in my heart. Mm-hmm. But if I did nothing, if nothing changed, he was going to continue to progress. And I had no chance. It was death, institutions, or jail. Right. There was no other choice. And if I did something, at least I was giving myself a 50-50 chance and him a 50-50 chance. Right. So I gambled on that, and I, I took a step back, and I learned how to best support him, and I set boundaries, and I support my son in his recovery, but I don't support his unhealthy choices. Right. And he's in college today. He's studying to be a social worker. Oh. He has goals and dreams and That's aspirations mm-hmm. that he never, he couldn't even see them five years ago. Um, there was no future in front of him. He could not see past the moment. Right. Every waking moment was spent trying to figure out how to get through the day. And and people say that people who struggle with addiction, are it's about willpower. It's not about strength. They are among the strongest people in the world. Their day, their waking moment is how do I get the drug? How do I get through the day? Where do I get the money? Who do I have to lie to? How do I cover up the lies? How do I stop hurting the people I'm hurting? It's a constant cycle. And I, you heard me say earlier that stopping the drug, that's the easy part of recovery. Everybody does that. Learning how to live that life, it's a long journey. It's a life journey, really. I mean, I think that's an important piece to highlight that it isn't something where you stop using and it's all done, that this is something that becomes a part of their day-to-day of how to cope with those feelings and those Uh responses to what the addiction was providing them and how to then incorporate that into a different way of living, um, which is a day-to-day 
experience. It is. So let's talk about that with an adult. And now let's talk about it with a kid, 12 to 25, whose brains aren't even fully developed when they start using the drug. Right. We stop, we stop that development. And yet we're expect, expecting kids to make adult decisions about their future. What consequences are there to impose on a child who hasn't even experienced life yet? Right. You know, there's no job, there's no kids, there's no career, there's no home. These are all things that are consequences that encourage people to be motivated in their recovery, to want to get better. Mm-hmm. These, this young adult population, this new face of addiction, they don't have that yet. They've never experienced it. So how do we hold them accountable right. to make them want to get better? Mm-hmm. The drugs feel really good. Mm-hmm. There's no disputing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So how do you help somebody get better? And in my, in my heart and soul, I really believe it's education. Mm-hmm. I mean, we have two jobs here. We need to change the perception of addiction because in today's world, everybody's at risk. And if we don't do that, my grandchildren will be walking through the gates of hell. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, we have a, a whole population that is affected by this epidemic that we can only try and help because the virus will spread. Right, right. You know, it will keep going. So nobody's safe. Right. Not if you raised your children, nothing. Nobody's safe. Now, as pa- for, for kind of guidance for parents, and I think we, we mentioned it earlier, the, you, you know, the struggle between is this a developmental phase, is this something they're just going through, or is this something where they have started that path of addiction and, and we're seeing those behaviors as a result of it. What, what are some ways parents can talk to their children about addiction? What are questions they can ask? What, from your experience, what, what were those types of things that you, you approached uh, in talking with your son to try to understand what was going on for him? Well, I mean, in the beginning, I did the, you know, don't do drugs talk. Right, right. And that clearly didn't work. Um, I think that we need to talk more about the genetics I think we need to change the perception that just because a pill comes from a doctor, it's safe, because it's not. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's no disputing that prescription drugs have started this path to addiction for this young adult population, yet we still live in a world that is very comfortable accepting a, a pill from somebody else. I was just at a presentation that Dr. Gail Bernstein did um, from the Erie County Department of Health, where she shared statistics that show that not at risk youth, not at risk, no genetic predisposition in their family, a stable home environment, both parents, they're kids that typically would not be classified at at risk kids who are given opiate narcotics for very legitimate reasons Mm -hmm. during the high school years are 33% more likely to develop an opiate addiction later in life. Yet we still give our kids lower tabs when they have their teeth pulled, Cough medicine that has hydrocodone in it, sports injuries where kids are hurt on the sports field and we still continue to give them lower tabs. We have a percentage of kids that are going to experience a euphoric feeling the very first time they take that drug. Do you know who it is? Why would you put your child at risk like that? Right, right. And, and I think it's the lack of education. I, I do presentations every week in colleges and universities and um, high schools, and it still amazes me as much as we have been talking about this subject, 
90% of the class still does not make that correlation between Lortab and Vicodin and hydrocodone and oxycodone and heroin. They do not understand that they all open the same door. And I, and I know a, a discussion, too, locally that we're having is also with our primary care and physicians about mm-hmm. prescribing uh, painkiller, uh, you know, medication, because it is a starting point to, to this epidemic. And, and also just, um, you know, I, I, I just think my, I, my husband had surgery uh, last year, and I remember the doctor sitting down with me and, like, going, you know, this is a prescription, you know, a pain medicine, and, you know, here's all the side effects from it, and, and here's all the bad things from it. So I said, well, why are you giving it then? If he doesn't, how do you know he even needs this right now? It's a minor surgery. A couple Advil or Tylenol might, might address the pain. Um, I know that there's a lot of conversation about all the layers of disciplines that really need to be involved in trying to address this epidemic, including for our physicians. Well, they did just, the CDC just released new prescribing guidelines for doctors just recently. Um, with that being said, what you just mentioned, it if you remember years ago, the smiley faces, you know, when they oh, started. the pain, pain levels, right. It's the doctor's job to address the needs of, mm-hmm. you know, people who suffer with pain. Um, but it was used on a smiley face scale. And, you know, clearly nobody saw this coming. Right. But here we are. Right. Now we need to change because it, it definitely, it's a 600% increase in accidental overdose deaths in 10 years. What do you do with an epidemic that goes left untreated? Right. You know, it will continue to increase. Um, everybody has a part in, in flipping the tables on this epidemic. Everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and sadly, people are going to die mm-hmm. along the way. I know I just wanted to share this one statistic that we had because it's just really speaking to the prescription piece. Um, in 2012, 259 million prescriptions were written for opiates, which was which was more than enough to give every American adult their own bottle of pills. Mm-hmm. So I think that really speaks to your point, Colleen, about um, you know where is the starting and what how do we need to look at um, you know injuries and how our children um, as well as our family members when they have an injury or a surgery or things like that, and these types of medications are being provided, what do we need to do in, in addressing that and, and watching that um, as that could be the starting point for some of someone with this type of an addiction? Judy, well, I think you- Yeah, I think it's important to keep in mind that, you know, prescription opiates don't go to one receptor site in the brain and heroin goes to another. They go to exactly the same receptor sites. And so when we have overstimulated those receptor sites, whether it's with prescription narcotics or with heroin, we're also creating just, an, in many cases, an irreversible brain chemistry um, that is a disease that is chronic, lifelong, as Colleen suggested, and will take years and years to reverse. So having the conversation in the living room, which many parents are not apt to want to do because they don't, they're afraid, right? They're afraid if they talk about it, that somehow that's going to encourage it. It's not going to encourage it. Everybody has to have the conversation. You would have the conversation with your child if you were predisposed, if she was predisposed to breast cancer. Mm -hmm. You would absolutely have that conversation. If you know that your kid is potentially predisposed because there is some genetic peace in the family, absolutely have the conversation. But even for those who are not at risk, 
even if you're not predisposed to breast cancer, we still teach our daughters about breast cancer. Absolutely. We need to teach all of our children mm-hmm. about addiction. It's kind of taking that Absolutely. same point. This is a disease, and we need to understand how to identify it and how to address it uh, collectively. That's a great analogy of, of that discussion because mm-hmm. um, I know when we, you know, my uh, my stepson as he's you know aged and now off to college, the conversation that my husband and I have had about you know about drugs and you know that making just trying it doesn't mean that you won't become addicted to it. Right. That one try, and you really need to think about that decision mm-hmm. of making that one try of whatever drug it is because the because of addiction and, and the impact that can have on you. So what are, uh, you know, some other guidance or advice that maybe you could give to parents um, in having those discussions with their children? Is there anything else you would like to highlight? Well, I mean, I think that the discussion is very important. I think that the meetings that you're invited to at the schools Um, when they're talking about it, those are meetings that you need to attend because this is changing ever, ever so quickly. Um, The, you know, the rite of passage that alcohol and marijuana should be accepted. We live in a different world than I grew up in. I mean, 20, 30 years ago, you could likely smoke marijuana or drink alcohol and still make it through your college ages and, and decide you want a better life. Alcohol is created today. It's designed to draw the young adult population in. You know, we have 8, 9, 10% alcohol by volume. Marijuana is so manipulated that the THC levels are, you know, 50 to 100 times more potent than what we experienced Mm. in, in my youth. These are all setting the stage for your child's vulnerability. It's not if they are subjected to prescription drugs or heroin. It's when. They will be. And, and allowing kids to, you know, do these things because it's accepted as a rite of passage with youth is setting them up for failure. We know that if kids um, refrain from alcohol and any other substance until the age of 21, that their um, susceptib- susceptibility to developing addiction goes down more than 40%. Wow. Because their brains are fully developed. Right. Now, prescription drugs and heroin, that's off the table. It doesn't matter It doesn't how old you are. You will become addicted with abuse. Um, if you take the pills as prescribed, you will develop dependence. You know, that's your two options. Yeah. Dep- dependence or addiction. So I'm not saying that there's not a very real need for these medications in our community. There definitely is. Mm -hmm. Um, It offers a lot of people a quality of life. But I'm telling you that your first, you know, instance, a tooth pulled, a sprained ankle, you know, start with ibuprofen. Don't open that door if you don't have to. Absolutely. Be educated. Absolutely. Well, I want to remind you that we are talking about the opiate epidemic today. Um, And as you're listening, if you need some help or linkage to resources in your community, you can call the SAMHSA National Helpline, which is 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. Or you can go online to SAMHSA. That's S-A-M-H-A-S-A dot gov to find resources um, in your local communities. So stay tuned for our last segment discussing intervention and treatment options for those with addiction. You're listening to The Journey, The Stories of Crisis and Hope. (music) 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelly's Show and Tell with host Shelly Hancock. We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey. Stories of Crisis and Hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone. I have Judy Tejada and Colleen Babcock as my guests today, and we've had two very rich segments so far about discussing addiction and specifically around the opiate epidemic um, that we've really uh, are diving deep into today. And I think it's a really important conversation that our listeners uh, become involved in um, because no one is immune, as Colleen shared earlier. No one is immune to this this epidemic, and it's really important for us to to all be a part of it. So um, I think we'd like to focus this last segment on uh, what are treatment options and, and, and recovery options. So Judy, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, is there one path to recovery? No, I, I don't think there is one path. I, I think there are lots of different options and it really is dependent on the person who's presenting themselves for treatment. What we do have right now that we haven't had by history is an amazing amount of medication-assisted treatment um, to begin the stabilization, the brain stabilization process, um, so that the person is then more likely to receive treatment, whether that's cognitive behavioral therapy, residential treatment, whatever it may be. We have to start with stabilizing brain chemistry. 
we have some good options out there. The, the most traditional is obviously methadone. Um, from methadone was born Suboxone. Mm-hmm. Suboxone is, I think, seen as the gold standard. I, I would say it's not necessarily the gold standard for this population that we're talking about, the young adult population, because unfortunately it has a very high street value attached to it. Interesting. Okay. And so, you know, the, the diversion of Suboxone into the community, um, I think, prolongs many of the people who are out on the street using from coming in because they get temporary relief from the Suboxone. I also think that Suboxone requires a certain amount of um, regimen to be able to take it and, and do well with it. And this population that we're talking about, unless they have good support systems around them, are unlikely to be able to manage Suboxone well themselves. So the next best option is the most recent, and that's Vivitrol. And Vivitrol is an IM injectable um, form of um, naltrexone. And what we're finding, or what the initial findings are, is that because that stays in the system for 30 days and has very little to no means of diversion, we are so seeing much more positive outcomes with Vivitrol than we are with Suboxone um, as a comparable okay. substance. So from a medication standpoint, those are clearly... Um, some of the options that are available, um, Vivitrol looking like it's going to be the best option over the long run. Um, from a treatment perspective, there are outpatient centers, there are residential centers, um, there are detox centers. All of those are available um, in most communities. And the question is, um, which one of those options is the best for any given person who presents for treatment? Right. And, and that I think we evaluate on a case-by-case basis, um, being able to ensure that um, what we're doing is is the first right step and not the first wrong step. Absolutely. And I think that's important because there's so many different options for treatment. But sometimes I think people think, well, I just need to go into detox. Like that's kind of the norm or the, the understood word, if you will, of what's an option. Mm-hmm. But you may not be at the stage where detox is available to you, but there are a lot of other options for treatment. Um, what are goals for treatment? When somebody goes into treatment, what are the goals for them? Uh, safety and stabilization would be the first goal that I would be looking for. And again, it would be that ability for the brain to be able to um, get some level of consistency back where it's been dysregulated for such a long period of time. So that would be a goal early on in treatment. And then I think the goals from there are frankly limitless. I mean, once we can get the brain restabilized, then there's so many other pieces that we can work on, whether that's a spiritual recovery path, whether that's um, re-engaging into the workforce, whether that's re-engaging in education, um, reunification with family um, that has been so shattered. Those are all what we would consider to be you know, our own goals for treatment, and then it really is up to the individual to decide where they want to prioritize that. Right, right. 
And I think the um, support during treatment from family is, is mm-hmm. such a critical component. Like we talked about earlier, um, not to um, give up on someone right. and to be there along that full path of recovery is so critical. Um, what types of supports, when somebody is in treatment, what, what are some supports for families that maybe these same providers would provide for families? Is there counseling or support groups oh, that yeah. are available? Mm-hmm. Yep, there's, there's definitely many, many different options for support. And I want to point out that support is crucial, and it's often the last thing that we do. Um, His parents will bang our head against the wall trying to figure out why what we're doing isn't working. And when you start to surround yourself with people who are going through the same process, you you start to build an arsenal of tools Mm. because recovery is different for everybody. But you learn about resources that are available. You learn about Suboxone. Suboxone can be far more effective if there's a good support system behind it that understands all those things that Judy talked about. Um, There's many things that as a family member you need to learn. And I said you don't get a manual. That's right. That's um, right. But there's there's NA meeting or um, Naranon meetings. There's Alanon meetings, um, which are your twelve step programs. Some people aren't comfortable with twelve step programs. There's the non secular, which is um, SOS. There is um, Horizon Health Services runs a parent and family support group meeting that meets three times a month. And it talks more about how to best support your loved one in recovery, what resources are available, how to navigate a drug court system if your loved one is in drug court, and the benefits of that. As a parent, the only ability we have is to slow down the progression of the disease. That's it. We can't make them stop using. Right. Um, learning how to slow down that progression is critical. Um, And it could be, you know, an outpatient program, an inpatient program, a halfway house, uh, you know, drug court program, a treatment program, or a jail cell. I mean, sitting in a jail cell, the charges that a youth would incur at this stage of the game is going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen 10 years from now if that disease is allowed to progress. Right. So early intervention is key. And you really do need that support because, again, your heart will pull you in another direction. But when you're surrounded by people who are saying, you know, it's okay, you're doing the best thing. You're doing the right thing by giving them some accountability. That's the only ability we have is to instill accountability. Um, They don't have, you know, children to lose. They don't have a career to lose. They don't have a car to lose. So we work together to just try and slow down. And um, it's a long journey. It's a very long journey. We, you know, talked about Narcan earlier, the availability of Narcan in our communities. Narcan is simply a tool. It's simply a tool that is going to help us to try and keep this young adult population alive long enough so we can figure out how to treat them. Right. Can you, can you talk about what Narcan is Yep. For our listeners who maybe, I mean, they might have heard it, but not understanding what it really is. Can you talk a little bit about that as well, a trainer? You've trained thousands of people on this, so I know Narcan you're... Narcan is an opiate antagonist, and people probably aren't going to understand that either. But the, the what it does is that Narcan will draw the opiates off of the receptors for a very short window of time. Okay. And depending on the potency of the drug is how much time you have. You know, you could have 30... 
30 to 90 minutes with straight heroin. You could have 10 minutes if it's fentanyl. But what it does is when too much of the opiates get into the receptors, they overfill the receptors, and it kind of tricks the brain and says, just go to sleep, stop breathing. Mm. Very peaceful death. And um, not to offend anybody, it's like putting a a pet to sleep, that calmness. Okay. A needless, senseless death. I mean, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Narcan will pull the opiates off of the receptors for a very short window of time and allow that person to breathe. It's not going to make them better. It is just going to allow them to breathe. If they're alive, then we have a chance at intervention and treatment. Mm -hmm. If they're dead, we don't. Right, right. So we have to keep in mind that, you know, these are somebody's son or daughter, Mm -hmm. husband, wife, brother, sister. These people have people that care about them. And recovery doesn't come with, you know, one shot and you're done. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I hear stories out there about, you know, we've used it on this person two or three times or this person. Yeah, but at least they're still alive and we're right. giving them the opportunity. All through history, you have had people that have chose to live an active addiction. Narcan isn't going to change that. Right. Narcan's simply a tool that's going to help us to help someone else. And I think that's a, the important piece that you highlighted because when we hear, um, you know, these stories are in the media more. You hear, oh, the police responded to this individual. This is the third time we've used Narcan on them. It starts to uh, desensitize the community to having compassion for the struggle that somebody is going through. Um, but do you feel that, you know, um, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but maybe to expand on it more, it, it, is it a crutch for someone who is using like because that's, that's, I think that's what people need to no. get through and understand that this is like they continue to use because Narcan's there. No, they continue to use because they're very sick. Right. That's, right. They need the drug. Let's remember they're not using Narcan on themselves. They're not going to administer Narcan themselves. They are unresponsive in breathing or not breathing. It is that need, like Judy talked about earlier, it quickly changes from a high to the need for survival. They are handcuffed to that drug and they cannot break the cycle. They need that drug. We don't have enough treatment facilities to be able to treat this population of people who are affected by this. There's been times where we've had 120 young adults on a waiting list to get into treatment at Horizon Village. Mm-hmm. That, that's not acceptable. Right, that's right. not acceptable. Yet, that's how quickly this has crept up on us. Absolutely. We need, we need some changes in legislation to be able to um, get people into treatment after we use Narcan. Honestly, the horse was kind of put in front of the cart because mm-hmm. we needed to stop the death. Right. We needed to save lives. Right. Now we're seeing that when you use Narcan, you throw somebody into immediate withdrawal, just like that, a snap of a finger. And what did we say earlier that withdrawal does? It keeps That's people using. Right. right, because of the pain. Now, initially when Narcan started, it was really trained for like law enforcement or emergency first responders, but now has really expanded to anyone mm-hmm. to be able mm-hmm. to be trained. Um, and also, I believe um, some local pharmacies are also going to be CBS. able to, CVS yep. is going to be able to provide that over-the-counter without a prescription as well. So it, again, it, it, you're quickly seeing the need to kind of cast the net a much wider of getting more and more people involved in trying to enter intervene when there's an overdose well it's yes but it's not only that again we are in an epidemic that spreads wide and far so 
it could be the senior citizen who's taking his medications for very real reasons and forgets that he took it it's and really takes it again point. and takes it again and now you have an overdose. It could be the child of somebody who gets into somebody who's struggling with addiction, gets into their medication or their stash and they overdose. We had law enforcement use it on a pet who ate its owner's prescriptions. You know, every medicine cabinet in America should have Narcan in its medicine cabinet, much like my mother had Epitac, right. because mm-hmm. we are in a crisis. Or be trained just like you are for CPR. Right, right, right. absolutely. Right. Seeing that as that same level it's an of respons- response, it's emergency yep. response. But it's re- I, there's such an important point, Colleen, that you mentioned that this is not just about heroin uh, addiction. This the Narcan can be used for everything that you described. Right. That mm-hmm. the potential of an overdose because of those examples that you gave can happen to anyone or anyone in our family. So to kind of looking at, at more of a broader intervention right. um, is really an important message that you shared. By by, by giving those and we're examples, training in in high school classrooms. Um, not all students are getting Narcan, but they're all getting the certifications, um, so that they understand and they know what to look for. Because sadly, when somebody is suffering from addiction disease and and they've experienced that euphoric feeling, that good feeling in in the beginning, they're very eager to share their newfound friend with other people. So it gets out there into the community. And we need to change that perception. We need to stop that. Wonderful. Well, I want to thank you so much uh, for joining me today in this discussion. You've provided such critical, uh, real-life examples of how we need to all be educated on this issue um, and be a, be a partner and be part of the solution in trying to help those um, that are experiencing addiction. So I want to, again, thank Judy Tejada and Colleen Babcock for joining me today um, in this critical discussion. I do want to also remind everyone that um, if you yourself are are struggling with addiction or know someone that you love that you want to try to get help and support, um, there is the SAMHSA National Helpline. Again, this is a treatment referral routing service. It's confidential and free. It's 24 hours a day. Um, and there's information um, that's provided on um, outpatient services, treatment facilities, support groups, um, other community-based organizations, because really it takes it's a full army of organizations that are coming together. Um, every discipline is impacted. So so a lot of agencies are involved in trying to help others um, who are experiencing addiction. So please reach out to the SAMHSA National Helpline. Their number is 1-800-662-HELP. That's 1-800-662-4357. And if you have any questions or comments about the show or you'd like to um, offer suggestions for future topics, please email me at jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's jpirovoiceamerica at gmail.com. Please join me every week on Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for The Journey, The Stories of Crisis and Hope. Thank you for tuning in and do your part this week to provide hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.